Okay, here we go. This is Tyler Murphy, and you're listening to the Lonely Painter Podcast. Uh, check one, check two. I'm going to pause this real quick, make sure we're good. Okay, I think we're, I think we're good. I uh, turned up the gain just a little bit on that. Um, I was going to start eating a protein peanut butter dark chocolate nature valley bar here while I'm drinking my coffee. Um, maybe I'll pause this if it, I don't want it to be ridiculous for you guys to listen to me eat. I'm going to eat this real quick and I'll be back. Okay. <clears throat> I'm back. I've eaten my granola bar. I've got my coffee. What to talk about today? Just uh, was hanging out with my dad yesterday and his friend, and we were watching football. Those were two really good games. I don't know if any of you guys listening are football fans, but both went into overtime, AFC and NFC championships. And um, Patriots are going back to the Super Bowl. It was crazy. Uh, I used to hate Tom Brady so much. And now I kind of feel like, I always tell people, I feel like it's watching, um, like, it's kind of like watching uh, Michael Jordan, or, like, I was too young to appreciate Michael Jordan. I think I was like five or six or seven or eight, like, by the time he retired. So, you know, I had no, I remember watching some of those games a little bit, but it was always rooting for the Utah Jazz for some reason. And uh, my brother and I would root for the Jazz. For some reason, we were Jazz fans. And then uh, my dad would always root for the Chicago Bulls. And um, so for some reason, I didn't like Michael Jordan when I was a little kid, which is a shame because like, you might as well root for the greatest. And and because... Uh, like they only come around every once in a while in a in a given sport or um, yeah and, and really in anything and so I kind of I've kind of given myself to uh, just all right the guy you know what he's like forty one or forty two just however many more years he's able to play he he can he can dominate and I'll be rooting for him. Um, Although I did really like watching that Patrick Mahomes, um, that guy is is pretty pretty uh, fun to watch, and, and uh, I don't know if any of you guys uh, are, are sports fans, but like, and I'm not like that big of a sports fan, but I always liked Tony Romo as a football player. I've always kind of liked the Dallas Cowboys, and him as an announcer, he's the greatest man. That guy, he calls every play before it happens, breaks down the game, uh, you know, shows things that that no other announcer ever can show, because uh, he understands the game in in such a different way than, than anybody else. Because he, I mean, just in a couple years back, was in there playing quarterback himself. So, anyways, <clears throat> just thought I'd endorse Tony Romo. And uh, this is an art podcast, though. And I never talk about art 
And um, I think last week on the podcast, uh, my roommate Josh stepped in and we talked just at the last second a little bit about art. Um, I just, I don't know why I have a hard time talking about it. I did, I have been going out painting a lot more recently and uh, went out, did a couple plein air paintings, did some studio paintings. One of those sold to a friend that I grew up with. Um, I didn't know him very well. He, he was a few years older than me, but the painting that I did would have been a scene that he would have driven past every single day on his way to school. And I think that, I think it kind of hit him at a gut level. And I, so I'm kind of fascinated by that idea of like, how do you, can I, can I keep painting things? Can I keep on looking for scenes that somehow connect to people on kind of that nostalgic level? Not on like a Thomas Kincaid nostalgic level, but like on a, on this level where, oh my gosh, I have seen that before that connects so much to my past. And especially, you know, that that's probably only going to happen for maybe people who grew up around the area that I'm painting. So maybe some of the paintings, you know, that I do, like what connects with, with one person won't connect with, with another, kind of like any artwork really. But just trying to think in that way, I guess, of, of looking for scenes that, that would be so familiar for someone. It is weird when, when we see paintings or hear a song that connects so deeply to something inside of us, and it's hard to put our finger on it, but gosh, that's, those are cool experiences. Like one of the paintings, I haven't bought a lot of original artwork, but uh, I think when I was maybe 19 or 20, I saw a painting, uh, actually of some poppies, and it was by a local, locally known artist, and um, somebody who I had taken several classes from, and so I was kind of familiar with his work. And when I saw these, this painting of these poppies, I was I immediately knew, like it just hit me at this gut level of like, oh my gosh, I think I have to buy that painting, <laughs> and uh, and it still, I, it still gets me in that way and I don't really it's hard to put my finger on exactly why I, I love the idea of being an artist that being somebody who is creating um, something that does that for people that's that's like a huge privilege and honor and it's rare to pull that off but uh, I think that's what I want to aim towards, um, at least for now. So uh, with that, I guess I am moving towards uh, putting on a new show called Portal. I think I am going to open it up to a handful of the different artists that I represent and just ask them to, to submit some of their best uh, works. I'll kind of describe to them this idea of, of portal. Uh, for me, the whole idea kind of spawned from actually a painting that Richie Carter did of these rooftops in Paris. And the painting 
when I had it in the gallery, it was an 18 by 24 inch painting. And it's kind of looking out across some rooftops. Me and Daniel were in this apartment there for a couple uh, weeks. Um, and they did a whole bunch of paintings of kind of the same scene, but at different times of the day. And, but this 18 by 24 painting uh, that Richie did, when I had it on the wall, it was as if, like, something about it gave me the sense that I could put my head through the frame and look left and look right, that it wasn't just a painting. Um, it kind of suspended my, my belief that this is a painting and rather felt like a portal into Paris. And I don't, I don't get that very often with paintings when I see them. Usually they're, they're flat, uh, or I just, I don't get it in that sense that really the best way I can describe it is that I could put my head through the painting, through the frame anyways, and enter into that scene. So that, with a lot of my work lately, that's what I'm trying to do, and I've kind of got some theories on how a person does that. I wonder if part of it, with that 18 by 24 painting of Richie's, if it had to do with the size, um, and that maybe the objects within the painting, the size of the window, of the windows, the size of the rooftops, the size of the Eiffel Tower, would have been... Um, really, really close or right on to site size, which, so if, uh, like if you're painting, uh, you can paint by site size, which would be, I think anyways, this is my understanding of painting by site size, that your, that the objects that are on the canvas are the same size at arm's length, uh, so as you're painting, if you were to measure something at arm's length distance, you know, using a brush and, and your fingers, if you swung your brush over to the canvas, that it would be that like the size of a person's head is a one-to-one -one ratio of how big that head is at arm's length. That's, that's kind of a clunky way of saying that, but hopefully hopefully you get the idea. So I wonder if it has to do with that, of that, that 18 by 24 painting of Richie's was, um, was sight size uh, accurate. Which actually, that, that, man, that makes me think of some strategies I want to employ when I'm out there painting. Hmm. Like I might take notes, you know, like measure an object with your brush at arm's length and then take notes on how big that is. And then, and then if you go do a studio piece, then have, you know, have that be your starting point that determines. Yeah. Okay. I, I'll have that idea is not completely formulated. I think maybe if you, Maybe you can finish the idea in your head. Um, hmm, that would be cool. So I want I want to do this show called Portal. Uh, I'm gonna try to make as many paintings as I can before I think sometime in the middle of February. And really, what I want to do with the gallery this year, and what I would love to see 
more artists do would be that that they put on shows put on exhibitions you know i have the privilege of having a gallery space where where i can uh, have my own exhibition but you know you could even do this at your own home but you create a body of work and it doesn't end there you invite a whole bunch of people to come and in the same night experience the work but then also there's an or a time in the night where you sit everybody down and you go okay you know I've created all this work and I want to tell you a little bit about why um, why I created it and what this is about that there's a little more intentionality on on uh, the sides of us as artists um, that that we kind of have the courage to speak up about our own work I've gone to a couple different shows this in 2018 that one was Clyde Aspavig um, he gave a talk at the Yellowstone Art Museum when his work was was hanging up in this great big room probably he had probably oh maybe 30 to 40 paintings on display maybe even more I'm not sure um, lots of large ones and then a whole bunch of uh, field studies as well and then alongside his work was Emil Carlson's work but they also uh, so they had kind of the opening night but then they also had another night that was uh, an artist talk night so Clyde was able to talk about his work and Emil Carlson's work and um, I just think that that's like that to me is the example that so many I, I want to see um, I want to experience that like with Richie's work or with Daniel's work or with Ken's work that it's not just painting after painting after painting getting better and better at doing head studies or painting um, you know doing studies of of you know like a an object um, I think that that's all good and that's skills and and that it, like you, you kind of need to to build um, those artistic skills but I want to see that all come together in some night where the artist has taken enough time to think about what it is that they're doing I just heard a thing today oh it was a it was in an overview by Gregory B. Sadler, who I've watched a handful of his videos on YouTube lately, and he kind of just breaks down different different philosophers, different books, um, kind of section by section. There's really no fluff to what he's doing, which I kind of like. But he was talking about Albert Camus uh, and Camus' myth of Sisyphus. And I think there was some sentence that really stuck out to me. It was that, we take on living without acquiring the ability to think. So we just kind of, something like, I wish I could remember it word for word, I should have wrote, written it down. But we tend to just start moving in some direction without really knowing why. And I, I think that that's fine, but occasionally though we're kind of shaken and then we start to kind of ponder our lives 
in a more deep way. And I guess that's what I would like to see a lot of us artists start to do. Um, that it's not just, I'm just doing these studies after studies after studies because um, I want to get better at being able to render some object on a two-dimensional plane, but rather you're moving toward some show, some exhibition, some something that you're trying to communicate to the world. And even, and I think you'll actually get further along in your, in your pursuit of becoming a master at say rendering an object on a two-dimensional plane if you have that as the underlying thing if you have some sense of why it matters that you're creating the thing that you're creating the other artist uh, that whose work um, I've really respected for a long time and he also put on a presentation and that was uh, T. Allen Lawson so I drove down to Sheridan a couple months ago and listened to him give a talk. He filled out an auditorium in Sheridan, which is where he grew up, and talked about his art, his art in relation to past artists. And, you know, I think people walked away from that that night realizing that there's something deeper that is motivating this guy to create. He created like 30 incredible paintings in a short amount of time of his hometown and kind of added that, lumped that on to um, kind of his workload that, because he's still, you know, got all these different big shows that he's working towards, things like uh, Pre to West and I don't know what else he does, Quest for the West, I, I'm not even familiar with a lot of the different big museum shows that are out there, but he took on doing this other show for some other reason. And, and it might be hard for him to even, he himself, to, to nail down and explain exactly why, but, but I do start to get the sense that there was, that there's something deeper that he's aiming towards that um, drives his work. Anyways, I think a while back on the uh, podcast I mentioned, I think it was in the episode, there was an episode when I was driving around and I was really mad at my roommate because I thought he stole my coffee grinder, which it turns out it was actually his coffee grinder all along. But um, I mentioned this idea of, of uh, the pure gift and... Um, I've been reading some John Caputo, John D. Caputo, um, Hoping Against Hope. And let's see if, uh, last night I just uh, picked it back up. The The beginning of the book kind of didn't catch me when I first started reading it. And then now I've been finding with a lot of these different um, authors, the beginning is often impenetrable to me for a while. And then... I come back to it, and after listening to other thinkers, other thinkers talking about their work, you know, as I kind of marinate in in a lot of this kind of philosophical, theological discourse, 
some of it is starting to crack open and I'm starting to understand things in new ways and it's it's opening up to me. And so last night I came back to this book that I bought a while back by John Caputo and um, some of it really just uh, was really inspiring to me and kind of devastating in another sense. So here's a part I want to share with you from Caputo's book, uh, Giving Without Return. It says, when we give a gift, we should by common consent not have anything up our sleeve. In that sense, gifts ought to be pure, free of any expectation of a payback. That means that the pure gift is not only a good example of living without why, it comes very close to being simply what without why means. Gifts, of course, are positively famous for being impure. On the side of the recipients, they are well known for their power of corruption, which is why we try to ban giving gifts to politicians and judges and other people in power. Gifts win influence, creating obligations and IOUs to be collected later. On the side of the benefactors, even the most well-intentioned and generous donors cannot resist having their name <laughs> inscribed on their gifts on their buildings, foundations, scholarships, and endowments. Benefactors are busy, but they can always find time to pose for a portrait, rewarding themselves generously for their show of generosity. And they are often made unhappy if their gifts are not used to serve their own purposes by the recipients. I once gave a lecture attended by the benefactor of the uh, named lecture series who gave me a hard time for not advancing the conclusions he thought he had paid in, he had paid for in advance. I told him he paid for the questions, not the answers. Indeed, the anthropologists describe potlatch competitions about who can give the bigger, splashier gift. Even when a gift we give is greeted with ingratitude, we speedily and secretly congratulate ourselves for giving to an ungrateful wretch who does not recognize the depths of our generosity. That's why Jesus says that gifts are to be given in secret, hidden from the eyes of the world. He goes on to say, uh, like everything else that is truly interesting and valuable, the gift is built on a dilemma. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. Uh, but its fabric is strengthened by these internal tensions, not destroyed. The dilemma is that once the gift is recognized as a gift, once an identifiable someone is intentionally and visibly generous to a recipient, the gift begins to be annulled. Donors, who are supposed to be giving up something, swell with pride in their generosity, while recipients, who are supposed to be gaining something, sink under the weight of the debt of gratitude. The bigger the gift, the deeper the dilemma. Gifts can be, po can be pure poison. Gifts are self-annulling. Donations are auto-detonating. Because they set off an economic chain reaction, a chain of debts to a manifestly generous benef benefactor. Try as we might to avoid it. And then he goes on to say, I want you to have this gift. Thank you. I'll never be able to repay you for your generosity. I don't want you to repay me. 
I want you to enjoy this gift. We'll never forget it. Forget it. Take it. It's yours. Enjoy. I'll be forever in your debt. I don't want you to be in my debt. I want you to have this gift. You are wonderfully generous. I'm not trying to be generous. I'm just trying to give this to you. I will let everyone know what a generous benefactor you are. I'm not trying to become famous. How can I convince you? All I want is for you to have this. The paradoxical outcome of this dilemma is that the pure gift would be found only where no one knows that anyone gave anyone anything. Pure gift does not exist. Let us say that it insists. Watch this term. I will deploy it throughout to mean something that does not quite exist, but still makes itself felt. Something that calls upon us, lures us, solicits us. The pure gift hovers over us like a spirit whispering, give in our ear. Or if you prefer a specter haunting us, asking us to give without return, to live without a why, while we know full well that such a thing can never actually be found. The pure gift insists it is up to us to see that it exists. How? By giving, making it happen. Provide it with existence in the real world, knowing all the while that it is bound eventually to turn into another, albeit wider and more generous economic circle. Its impossibility is no excuse not to give. Whew. All right. That's really good. You guys should check out the rest of this book. Um, I don't really know where to go from there. I guess uh, I want to uh, somehow figure out how to bring that into reality through my work, through my art, through whatever it is that I'm doing. And uh, I really like that idea of that a thing can not exist and yet can still insist. And it insists in such a way that it's left to us to bring it into existence. So with that, um, happy painting everybody good to yourselves. I'll talk to you next week.